Hey, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, where we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. And uh, the blind man I invited to join us today is Dan Willis, who it seems like, Dan, we've known each other forever. It's got to be at least 15 years now. We, we've crossed paths at many of the IA summits uh, in history, and uh, it's been fun to be working with you. Uh, for um, more specifically on the Enterprise UX and now Enterprise Experience Conference. If you've been to that conference, you know that Dan is the mastermind behind our storytelling sessions that end the first of the two days and just are like unbelievable sessions where they run five minutes and yet each speaker somehow Dan has gotten them so prepared that five minutes doesn't seem too rushed. They get through the whole story. I wanted to actually get some storytelling about and from Dan himself. He usually likes to defer the spotlight to others. But before I do that, let me just introduce Dan in the more formal way, which is he is Director of Customer Experience at uh, the GSA's Centers of Excellence. And if you know, don't know what GSA stands for, that's the General Services Administration of the U.S. government. Dan has been working with uh, various government entities for a long time. Uh, he's been a, an, a consultant at Sapient and then at the U.S. Digital Service and in many other contexts and has a lot of experience working with um, large, often bureaucratic, slow-moving organizations from something of an outsider's perspective. Dan, at this year's Enterprise Experience, which is happening August 31st to September 3rd, he is running the day where we cover the theme of the outsider's perspective on the enterprise. So he's going to be working with six speakers, covering the full day, and I, I can't really think of a better person to take on this topic than Dan. So Dan, whew, that's a longer intro than normal, but there's a lot to cover. And I still feel like I left some things out. First of all, welcome. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Lou. That was an extremely long introduction. Uh, you know, part of it is I, I'm enjoying watching you squirm. Um, <laughs> I actually have the video on. I can see Dan, and I know Dan well enough to know this is a slight bit of torture for him. But, um, Daniel, one of the things that I used to do in my career was, as, as when I was doing a lot of IA work, um, about 10 years ago was um, I was helping large enterprises try to get their arms around their information architecture challenges. And um, I found very quickly that in, in one sense, I was very prepared to do the work uh, because I'm sort of an empathetic guy. And so I used to tell people, you don't, you're not really hiring an information architect, you're really hiring an information therapist, you're going to be on my couch. And, and that worked pretty well. But the thing I didn't really have any understanding about or much preparation for were organizational politics and organizational psychology. And I finally just gave up. It wasn't a bad life, <laughs> but I gave up and decided to go into the oh so lucrative world of publishing. Um, 10 years ago, I don't know, have things changed much since then? You, you were doing it then and you're doing it now. What's, what's different about the outsider and whatever impact they can have on an enterprise when it comes to UX? That's interesting. I, I met with uh, my, uh, so, uh, uh, the, a subset of my speakers today, 
this morning I had a meeting with four of the six. The other two weren't able to make it. Um, this particular meeting, um, uh, and then we got into that. We talked about a little bit. We talked about uh, how things have changed. Um, in a in a large way, my experience is, is that it hasn't changed. Um, but uh, I remember uh, Seamus Byrne, who's one of my one of the six team speakers, was saying things have definitely improved. Um, uh, the tools have certainly improved. I, I think he's totally right about that. The tools have improved that allow an outsider to not have to stumble quite so much. Um, and, and in a, another conversation, Seamus pointed out that um, there's this expectation that I think continues today, but its ramification has changed a little bit. But there's this expectation that I've paid you a chunk of money, my, this outside company, so you should be able to hit the ground running, which is really saying, I'm paying you to be a mind reader and to magically know things that only people know that have been inside the organization for, for years and in some cases in the federal government for decades. Um, completely unrealistic expectation. Uh, that that continues today, but it, it, we can mitigate that a little bit. Some of the digital tools allow us to mitigate it. Um, one of the big challenges in the federal space, and I have experienced as an outsider, I sort of born to be an outsider. I don't mean that in a good way and I'm not proud of it, but it, the fact is it's like, the, I'm, I'm gonna botch the quote, but it's the old Groucho Marx thing. I, I question any organization that would have me in their organization. Um, I don't like that I'm wired that way, but I am. And so I tend to, I tend to be an outsider. So uh, uh, my career sort of reflects that I end up on the outside no matter what. And I've been an outsider to, uh, when I've worked inside, I've been an outsider, but also it, I've done this in the commercial space, I've done it in the nonprofit space, and I've done it in the federal space. And and there are many similarities in all of them. Um, uh, but one of the biggest challenges in the federal space is paper, right? So uh, when I was at US Digital Service, which I'm not now, but I was there for three years, I worked mainly with DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, the folks, the side of it that does immigration, USCIS. And their number one challenge in their system is it's completely based on paper. So if you're applying to become a citizen and you move, you're, they have to get your file. Or sometimes if you move, you have to go fly back to wherever you came from because that's where your paper is. So an entire system is just stuck to paper. And now I'm working with OPM and OPM is in a similar challenge where a huge chunk of their process on figuring out um, uh, uh, federal retirement benefits is paper-based. And that's the Office of Personnel Management? Yes, sorry about that. So at, at the, uh, where I'm working now, so now I'm at the uh, Centers of Excellence for GSA, and we'll talk about what that is a little bit later, but I've uh, been there a little over a year. And my client, just like a normal consultant, my client is OPM. And their biggest challenge is paper. Um, uh, so in the federal space, that mind reading you have to do, part of it is to figure out, you know, it used to be, uh, everybody was paper-based. And so when you were an outsider, first thing you had to do was read a bunch of paper documents, right? And and then you'd have to find people. And there were literally, uh, you know, there were literally uh, um, reports with dust on them that you had to find at a cubicle and say, ah, I found this. I, I've heard of this. I finally found it. Um, so over time, what's changed is a lot of that stuff is digitized. And that helps the outsider because it is still an unrealistic expectation that you're a mind reader because I'm paying you to all this money. And so somehow you must magically know our inner organization. Well, one variable on that is our ability to, to do that quick discovery when they think to learn things that they think we already know magically now happens digitally. And even in federal space like OPM, 
and USCIS that are bonded to paper, even with them, it's a lot easier now because I can get my fingers into hundreds of pages of documents and, and, and relevant to our times right now with the coronavirus, I don't even have to physically be at the location to be able to get this stuff or for people to pass it on. So that's changed radically. And you've had something to do with that in your projects, right? You, I'm, I'm guessing at least that you, some of the projects you worked on were getting from paper to digital. (laughs) Well, it's funny if you, if uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I probably will. Um, Hold on, Dan. Uh, uh, Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Did we have you sign the waiver? I'm okay. Go on. (laughs) Just be careful. The politicians, the easiest thing for a politician, especially when administrations change, and this is not a knock against the current administration, this is all administrations. When they roll in, one of the easiest things for you to do is to realize that we're we're, we're just uh, haunted by paper in some of these areas. So they say, well, that's the answer then. We just have to get away from this paper-based thing. But you can't go directly at that. Uh, in some organizations uh, that, that I'm just going to sort of gloss over and say there are federal agencies that uh, their biggest problem right now is technical debt. Uh, and so they've got a mainframe uh, chugging away in there that has hundreds of applications. And those hundreds of applications, some of them have passed their time of life, you know, the, where, the, where they're supported by their manufacturer. And one of the things that COE did for OPM, first thing we did was help them replace the mainframe and, and everybody laughed at us because it's like, wait, you bought them a mainframe? You're here to modernize and you bought them a mainframe? because of exactly this challenge. It's like, I'd love to get to the part where we get rid of paper, but first you've got this technical debt and the mainframe you have isn't taking advantage of some of the things we can do with one that's been built in the last you know, two years instead of the last 50 years. But those applications are still there and they've passed time of life. So you have this technical debt. So first I had to deal with this mainframe issue. Couldn't get rid of the mainframe yet. Let me buy a new one. Okay, got a new mainframe. Good, still trying to get rid of paper. Wow. But now I got this technical debt. Okay, let me start dealing with the technical debt. The real challenge is the data, right? So the mainframe is the the, the system of record, and and it's completely dependent on applications of past life. So I have to deal with that. So you don't throw a switch and magically they're changed. So we solve the data issue, and only now can we start to say, okay, so now let's look at the processes across the organization. Now that we've looked at the processes across the organization, now we can talk about paper. You just described eight to 10 years of work. So, okay, you know, first of all, good Lord, um, I, I didn't do a whole lot of work with the federal government. Uh, I did a little bit with the VA and um, the CDC, but I never, never had to deal with the level of technical debt that you did. Um, so um, the, the areas that I always found really challenging, I wonder if you are seeing this and, um, maybe some of the six folks that are speaking as part of the theme and enterprise experience are saying twofold. Uh, one challenge is, is mapping, like actually being able to map the space that those processes are, are resident within. So, um, you know, I, I'm, um, like a lot of people very interested in, in strategic mapping and, um, I'm learning, we had Simon Wardley who does the Wardley maps, uh, join us for one of our community video conferences last year. It was, it was just fascinating. But the ability to map a complex system like uh, a, a bureau of the federal government seems to be a really challenging area that I, I wonder if or like what advice you'd have even to get started with that. And the other area is, 
you know, if, if you as an outsider have to come in and read minds, all right, you know, we all have to do some mind reading one way or another in our line of work. But what really I think is challenging is, is not the mind reading so much, but when you actually start understanding what people are dealing with, you got to understand the language they're using to describe their domain. And I imagine when you have a, a discussion at OPM with people who've been there for their whole careers, the, the terminology that they use to describe their work and their customers and so on and their processes could be dramatically different than the terminology of the jargon that's used at the uh, department of, uh, at the D was it the DHS you were working with? So um, yeah. how do you, you know, how do you map the environment so that you can make sense of it and, and surface those processes? And how do you learn the language of each domain so you can have conversations and do that mind reading with the people you're trying to support? Well, certainly on the on the mapping part, I think um, that's an area where I find myself doing various mapping exercises and everything I do, uh, because that's how I start to really understand the data I'm dealing with, right? Um, um, uh, I do think that that you know traditional research is the way to go. You do want to go in and interview your stakeholders. You want to in interviewing your stakeholders, you want to find the people who are actually doing the work, and then you want to have, find them in their dark corners and find out how they're doing their jobs. Um, but but that's not enough, right? It doesn't give me, a, just because these people said X doesn't mean it's necessarily X, or that X fits what I needed to do, right? So I'm walking in saying, well, you've never been user-centric. Nothing you've done has been user-centric as an organization, not in a way that we can help you with. So how do I do this big shift to instead of looking, um, you know, typically, uh, even if you've moved a federal agency off of, or they've moved on their own off of waterfall, and we've got them into at least thinking iteratively, uh, they still tend to do waterfall requirements and have waterfall expectations. And that's not like people are slow. These are people who are highly skilled, but the acquisition process doesn't actually favor yet. Uh, it's, it's made huge strides in the last decade, but it still doesn't really favor not knowing the total thing you're paying for, which if you think about your own taxes, that sounds all right. It's like, well, I should know what I'm paying for. I'm paying all these taxes. That sounds reasonable. The end result of that is you're going to get waterfall requirements. And then if you've got an agile process and you're going to jam waterfall requirements on the front of it, well, now you got a problem. So in all of these cases, mapping is relevant because just for UX professionals to get their arms around the problem for their own purposes or their team's purposes, they have to kind of go off into their own space and say, well, I think when they say this, it really is that, and let me map it. And so what, what, I am, yeah, well, what kind of map would we see on the war room wall? Uh, in your, well, that's, what, I, what I'm trying to describe is, is, I think first it's a personal mapping, right? Um, it's not necessarily, a team rolls in and says, we always map this way. We have, you know, again, I've been on both sides. I've been the team that rolled into an agency, ironically, DHS. When I was at Sapien Government Services, DHS was one of our, was one of our uh, clients. And I, I didn't have a great time there and I, uh, at DHS. And I was like, I'll never go in there. And then I ended up becoming a DHS employee years later, coach figure. But anyway, um, so I've been on both sides of that. I've been the group that rolls in and says, we have a system. And I've, I've been inside the place and have somebody come in and say, these jokers from the outside come in and say, well, we have a system. 
And in neither cases do I find it particularly satisfying. So I don't, I don't think that there's a formula that says, here's the map you use. I think first it's a personal thing. I'm going to map so that I understand it. Then it's slightly larger. I'm going to map it so that my team can understand it and have conversations about it. Now, if that's a standardized way within your organization, great. As soon as that doesn't work, well, then change it because you're still not getting paid for that part yet because you're not doing the work that they actually expected you to do yet. You're just trying to understand what the hell is going on here. Very rarely have I been in a situation where an organization says, you know, we really don't understand ourselves very well. So if you could map us, we'd pay you a chunk of money and then we'll figure out what the problem is. But in fact, that has been our value every single time. You bring us in for this little stovepipe silo thing. We're going to bleed all over the place and we're going to tell you, well, here's, here's the answer to the, in our best situation. Here's the answer to the question you ask. Here's the question you really should ask. And here's the answer to the question you really should ask. Every consulting gig from every consultant on the planet is some version of that. Sometimes we do it poorly. Sometimes we do it well. Sometimes we do it and capitalism is a driver. Like, I'm going to make more money this way. That never works. But when you're just trying to say, look, I do want to solve your problem, but you've got a bigger problem. Um, that's, you know, 100 out of 100 assignments. Uh, that, that happens to all, to all uh, uh, outside forces that come inside. And where mapping comes into play, this where we have made some real strides. So keep in mind, this is true in the commercial space, but it's, it, 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 so uh, let, me, let me back up a second. So I've spent a lot, so I, I, I've worked mostly commercial in my career, but I'm old. So that doesn't, doesn't mean I haven't done lots of years in the federal agencies. Federal agencies, I did about five years at saving government services, then did some solo consulting where a federal agency, because I live in the D.C. area, which means you're going to have federal clients if you're, if you're making any money. Some of those clients are going to be federal. Uh, and then I got involved in this really wonderful thing that's going on in civic tech of U.S. digital service, which is the ultimate outsiders, right? They hire for outsiders like nobody ever has in the federal government. Um, and sometimes that causes incredibly bad things to happen because there's friction there. But sometimes that friction leads to really good things. But in general, it's how you leverage digital disruption because you, you don't leverage it from so the old Einstein quote, right? The, 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 the mindset that uh, uh, created a problem is very rarely the same mindset that can solve the problem. That's just human beings. It's just, a, it, it's just true. So to, to really go whole hog for outsiders, which is what U.S. digital services done. Let's bring people in. Let's have them on short-term contracts. They have 100% churn, right? All of these folks are Schedule A. None of them are going to be here in more than, for more than four years. When I first rolled into it, it was more than two years. But now it's four years. They're Schedule A employees. So they're the ultimate outsiders. And their value is exactly that, to come in and say, look, you're not going to fix this the way you built it. It's gonna, we're going to have to break it somehow. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. 
give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're gonna find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. And a tool that's really become useful for us is sort of the, I mean, service design has been powerful for a long time, but it's really had a, a surge over the last couple of years where lots of different groups are starting to use the language. And the one that's everywhere right now is journey mapping. And just like, I don't want to start a hornet's nest of conversation about this, but just like wireframes, uh, it's sort of taken on its own life, right? Wireframes to this day are really useful, but they aren't like a solution. You push a button, I have wireframes, therefore I have a solution. Nothing like that happens. The thing where they're common for me is the effort of doing a wireframe is the value. If there's a document at the end of it, an artifact at the end of it, great. But journey mapping is like that, only worse, because journey maps are really sexy. They make really good posters that, what do you want to know what I spent $2 million for consulting for? Look at the poster. <laughs> oh my God, it's a beautiful poster. But the, the work that it takes to do a really quality journey map, can that in itself can help transform an organization. Because if you're a system-centric, remember I, about three years ago when I started this conversation, this little rant, um, I, I mentioned waterfall requirements, right? One of the things that happens with waterfall requirements, they tend to be system-centric, right? They are, let me, if I can take five kinds of functionality and define them in great detail and you build each of those five pieces of functionality i have successful software and if that was true it would have been great but lou would have never been an ia consultant an ia and started his career i would have never my career because that doesn't actually work for the human beings that have to use this stuff because if you build it and you just expect it to work because it's logical then now you have to invest in the training and then your training gets worse and you don't have a great solution User experience was to say, you know, well, what if we switch that camera to the other side? What if we look at it from the user? What if we start to say, if these human beings need to use this thing, who are the most important people to use this thing? Okay, and what do they need to do their jobs? Forget what you're doing. Okay, now how does your, how do you fit within that context? So I've just defined the user experience community, but it also means I've switched that camera to the other side. Well, guess what? When we go into a federal agency or commercial operation, and they tend to be system-centric, whether they admit it or not. And they're looking at things from a very much from a system standpoint, very traditional, this is how we do requirements standpoint. When we do a journey map, first thing we do is, I don't want to hear about your system. I have, to, I have to have, this journey map has to be to a specific perspective. So first of all, who should that perspective be? Oh, it should be all of our customers. Great, no problem. Who are all your customers? And as soon as they start talking about it, you realize you have this wild diversity of customers which allows you to have them a business conversation with them to say, so if there's a fire and you had to save some of these wonderful human beings who are your customers, who would you save? Oh, good. And you finally got some sort of answer you can work with. They say, okay, 
So let's map their experience with your organization from here, from A to Z, right? That is the value of journey mapping. Now, out of that, I'm going to have this poster-sized beautiful thing. But I just switched an integral part of an organization from looking at it from system-centric to looking at it from user-centric. And not by selling them on the idealism of, no, you should do this. This is good for users. Let's delight users. It's from a problem-solving standpoint. Like, right. so when and you're trying to define that problem, it doesn't work. Let's try this. But journey maps are the, the Trojan horse here. and uh, They are. They are. Definitely. So, uh, let's let's talk about uh, some of the folks uh, that are going to be presenting at Enterprise Experience under your guiding wing. Um, poor poor Lou, you had this nice crafted question that started with mapping, and then you got a language. Uh, you're just deserting uh, language altogether. Just like journey mapping, it's we just left journey. we just left language behind. <laughs> it's the journey that we take together. That's, That's the, right. Yeah, the questions are like the journey map, but um, yeah. You know, <laughs> but you know, I'm also keeping my eye on the clock. Um, and I would like to know, um, you know, what kinds of patterns you're seeing uh, among the, the outsidership as described in the talks, the six talks uh, that are going to be presented at Enterprise Experience from that outsider perspective. And, you know, if, you're seeing, if there's patterns in terms of the dynamic between insiders and outsiders, you right. lay it off. So originally, uh, um, originally, uh, with your encouragement and with Lada Gorenko's encouragement, uh, I was really, really trying to design the hell out of this, this theme. And like, I got this idea from the, from the pieces, from the great submissions we got in, because we got tons of great submissions and it was hard to get through them. Right. And it, it, for all the good reasons, it's like, this is good stuff. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to lose anything. that's great. Um, but, but with that, we were, we had enough content to be, to really craft a design. And the design was to sort of have this, couple of folks who are insider outside have been both sides of that operation but now they're mainly an insider and the other one is mainly an outsider hey if they hashed out a conversation that'd be great and then let's have let's toggle back and forth i'll have an outsider talk about something and i'll have an insider talk about something and i'm an outsider talk about something and i'll have an insider talk about something and then they'll all get together and we'll have this great conversation so that that was the plan and coronavirus killed it right not going to work it's way too aggressive the pieces are too hard to manage to make it end up there for uh, what is largely for me, at least as a designer, uh, an unknown. Because I've never designed virt a virtual theme before. So I said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is remove complexity. And everything I was thinking about was pretty freaking complex. So let's take it all the way back to the basics. I've got six really talented motivated speakers, right? They have great experience. They're across the spectrum. They have all sorts of different kinds of insider outsider experience and, and they have opinions about it. That's great content. Okay, good. And then Lou sort of swings in and says, well, I've got finite time and here's how you could slice it up. Like, okay, great. That's a constraint. Let's design to that constraint. So now we've got six 20 minute uh, uh, talks. Each one of them has some flexibility to go where they want it to go. So it's a lot less of my heavy handed no, you need to talk about X. Now it's more like, what do you want to talk about? And so they're really working with that right now. And what's happening, uh, the two original folks, which was the, the folks that I was going to have sort of do this very non-traditional back and forth that would have been very hard to pull off in a physical space. I just don't know how to, I don't have the experience to know how to do it in a virtual space. But that Shahzad, uh, I don't know how to say her last name, unfortunately, Sama Zayda, sorry, I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, and Melinda Belcher. And instead of them going against each other, they have their own 
uh, original uh, submissions for what they sent in. And, and what, what I'm finding with those two is it does tend to be more at the global level of like, uh, in the case of Melinda, she's like, here's things that, that can make that relationship between insiders and outsiders be better. And in her own way, Sharzad's doing the same thing. But then we've got this interesting, we still remember I got the insider-outsider thing. So I've got an insider, Michelle Wong, who's saying, this is, this is how you should bring in uh, something that's worked for her, right? This is a case study where she actually knows her, you know, she, this isn't theoretical in any way. But where she works, they have a process, they have a system, and it's worked. And so she's going to talk about that system, about how you bring a consultant in to set them up for success. And then we've got uh, um, an outsider. Seamus, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Seamus Byrne, who's going to talk about, let's look at this from the AG's perspective. When things go wrong, here's some tactics you can do about them. When things go wrong in the inside or outside. Then we went back to uh, uh, an insider, Saul Metz, who's going to talk about, well, how do you hire them in the first place? Who are the right people to hire for this? What do you look for when you're hiring? And then we go back to the outside. Darian Davis is going to talk about when we have really toxic relationships uh, uh, with the folks who are internal. So we've, we're still doing the inside-outside toggle thing, but each of these folks grab their own little space, and within that space, they can do what they need to do. Well, that's great. I'm really glad that you're doing that toggling, and I, I think one of the things that I think we would agree on this, uh, you know, looking back 20 years, you've seen this interesting kind of back and forth, um, not only over time in terms of our UX people on the outside, uh, like I think, you know, 20 years ago, most of us were, and then we started migrating in-house, and and then roles sort of balance between inside and outside and specialized in different ways. Consultants and agencies have certain roles, variety of roles, people on the inside have a variety of roles, and it's a symbiotic system, but that the individuals themselves, like yourself, have been inside and outside and I think, you know, anyone who's been in this field for, let's say, at least 10 years has probably been in one and the other, both an insider and an outsider. Um, we, we have to wrap in a moment, but I want everyone, first of all, to um, remember uh, who we're talking to. This is uh, Dan Willis, and he, um, as you can tell, is the, one of the most fabulous masters of the rant that I've ever met. He's making a great face right now, but one of the things he's also great at, and I wish we could have featured in one way or another today is uh, sketching. And he does some amazing, uh, I guess you'd call it art. It's certainly sketching, uh, both uh, relevant to what we do. And then sometimes I've caught him just doing some weird stuff that uh, was probably just, you know, his mind wandering. And I, Dan, I don't know if you remember, I even brought home one of your uh, bizarre illustrations to my, my son. I thought he'd appreciate it, and he did. Anyway, uh, again, Dan, it's, it's been wonderful to have you join us. Uh, Dan Willis, Director of Customer Experience at GSA Centers of Excellence, a fixture in the IA world, a fixture in UX uh, work being done for the uh, U.S. federal government, and someone who has been a fixture at the Enterprise UX and now Enterprise Experience Conference, where he is going to be facilitating six fantastic speakers on uh, the role of outsiders in terms of helping 
improve enterprise UX. And that is going to be uh, the day on September 2nd at Enterprise Experience. You can attend it virtually. It's a virtualized conference. You can just go to that day or you can go to all four days or anything in between. We have four different themes and, and Dan is handling one of them. Um, again, that's enterpriseexperience.net, uh, August 31st through September 3rd, plus a, a bunch of really great workshops as well. Uh, Dan, before we break, question for you. Is there any initiative, effort, project, person, book, article that you want our listeners to know about? Well, I guess the big one is, is, is um, I, I'm a federal employee right now, and, and uh, 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 I'm surprised by that. Um, I'm, I'm, what am I, 50, 55, so I spent 50 uh, I, I, I didn't become a federal employee until my late forties. Um, and, uh, so it's a surprise to me. Uh, again, I live in the DC market. So having federal, uh, agencies as a client, especially when I was on my own as a consultant was a necessity, right? It pays the bills. Um, and there was some really interesting stuff going on in there, but, uh, until Dana now uh, pulled me into the U S digital service, I had never really paid much attention to civic tech and civic tech is this thing going on, which is fascinating. Basically, you know, bad agencies, since we're talking about agencies and insiders and outsiders, bad agencies will, will tell you how you can plan for disruption or you can use disruption to do blah, 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 blah. They treat disruption like this easy thing. And I've never found that to be true. I think disruption is like a, a getting hit by a car. Sometimes when you get hit by a car and I came up through the newspaper industry, so I, I lived this. <laughs> I lived this. I was a journalist in a newsroom uh, when I got in a car wreck, which was the digital disruption, uh, and especially what happened to classified ads is really what, what killed newspapers as we knew them. And they are coming back because they're essential. But anyway, um, disruption is like getting hit by a car, and a lot of times it kills you, and so you don't have any more life. But if it doesn't kill you, it is the defining aspect of the rest of your life. And that's how we should think about disruption. And digital disruption, digital disruption has happened to everybody, but it's hit the federal uh, federal agencies like a train, like a fast-moving train kind of car wreck, you know. Um, um, and that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity because it broke open all sorts of things that we never could have done before, and now we can actually make these changes that people have been pitching about forever. But there's a limited amount of time, in my opinion, that we're going to have that opportunity because like in all things, it'll eventually become back to pretty much whatever it's going to be. We're not going to radically change it. So we have like 10 years and we've already used like ah, three of them, four of them, um, of the civic tech opportunity to take advantage of digital disruption. And so U.S. Digital Services, where I spent three years, that's what that's what the Daniel pulled me into. And, and thank God, because uh, I had a great time. I burned out like mother, but it was totally worth it. Um, and, it, and, and, and that's what really you're selling it, man. Right you're selling it. That's it. Hey, let's talk about it truthfully. It is, you are in the most ambiguous environment you could possibly be in. And that just wears you down. There's a reason, another reason they use schedule a because nobody can survive this for more than four or five years. Um, and four is really pushing it. Most people don't, I didn't make it to four, I did three. And that's why I'm at the centers of excellence at GSA, because it's a different uh, approach to the same thing. It's like, how do we take a different way? To take advantage of this digital disruption, and we're doing civic tech as well. And so that's that's the thing that I find really interesting. So my 
I am fascinated now on fixing broken stuff on the government and really getting an opportunity to do it. And that opportunity is open to our entire, our entire uh, uh, industry. And the first place to do it is to apply at U.S. Digital Service and figure out how you can work for them. There's also a fantastic group called 18F, which is trying to do the same thing. 18F tend to be more remote. If you can't move from where you are, 18F is a great place to apply. And if you can move, I'd actually, based on my experience, nothing against 18F or anybody else, I would apply at USDS. It is a fantastic organization. And you will do fantastic, interesting stuff that may hurt you for a while because it's really hard. Um, uh, you will prefer. It is, the, it is the most interesting thing going on, I think, in user experience work today. And it's a wide open opportunity. It's not always easy to get in. You have to knock a few times. And if you're looking at it from a traditional consulting standpoint of, oh, what a great customer you might not get into the interesting stuff. It's really yet, there's this, uh, another fascinating organization you can get into called Code for America. And one of the revelations when I was at the Code for America conference is everybody's like comparing notes and going, you know, everybody's really fired up to help fix the federal government, but none of them actually want to work for the federal government, which is totally true. But you have to, because sometimes you have to be that person who's sitting in a cubicle who sees that report that has dust on it and realize this is the key to the universe. This is the Ark of the Covenant, and it's been sitting in this cubicle in Washington, D.C. You don't get that as an, outside, an outsider being paid to come in for a specific thing. Um, just to finish the point and to tie it in with our topic, the magic trick that U.S. Digital Services set up is you are both an insider and an outsider at the same time. You're an outsider because you're going to agencies that you don't report to. Keep that in mind. This is really important. I go to I, I go to USGIS. None of the, the, the stakeholders and top managers I'm talking to can actually get me fired, and they know it. Um, and they can't close me out because uh, usually a, a thing that they do in a lot of federal governments, oh, you can't talk. You're a contractor. You can't be involved in this conversation. So, well, actually, I'm a federal employee, so I can be involved in this conversation. But you can't actually deal with me the way you would normally deal with a consultant. First of all, you're not paying for me the way you normally do with U.S. Digital Service. Um, and uh, 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 and I don't work for you, and I'm not, I don't report to you. And if you play that right, and, and they, you learn pretty quickly how to play that, you actually can deliver so much more for those stakeholders by not allowing where it's impossible for you to work the way they're used to work. Well, Dan, you, you just... And it is an entirely... But just to drive it home, it is a user-centric organization, which means you never have a conversation where system-centric is acceptable. So I'm telling you, man, it is it is it is where the cool stuff is happening right now. Well, usually, uh, I think the um, the internal consultant role is the the absolute worst kind of position <laughs> to be. You just you just changed my mind. So thank you, and also thank you for, <laughs> they're picking applications, Lou. I can put a word for you. I'm ready, but um, uh, you're actually. Um, I, I want to. I do want to thank you, uh, honestly, about uh, the work that people like you are are doing on behalf of us. Like, hey, I'm paying for you, so. I guess I, you know, I'm paying your, your salary uh, on one hand, uh, um, but I think the benefits that UX people are, are bringing to the function of federal government are only just now being recognized and, and the investment is so amazing and so worth it. So thank you for bearing with all the bureaucratic BS and, uh, and for doing wonderful stuff uh, in enterprise experience uh, this year and, and in past years. And we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Luke. It's fun. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. 
please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.